Thanks. So we are joined today by Aaron Rabinowitz. He's a, a PTL in the Rutgers Philosophy Department and PhD student in Rutgers Graduate School of Education. Uh, he specializes in moral education and applied ethics. I know him as a podcaster and uh, host of the fantastic Embrace the Void podcast and co-host of the super fun Philosophers in Space podcast, where he works to make philosophy accessible through science fiction and lively discussion. I love those two podcasts a lot. So Aaron, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Great. Yeah. And thanks for, for coming on. This podcast for listeners, they'll know that it's kind of more technically focused in a lot of ways. I know in our interview request, we had talked briefly about how uh, maybe that, that wasn't something that was your focus, but I did want to talk to you because you have a lot of interesting perspective from what I can tell uh, regarding the actual kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, the admin work or, or the management and thinking through of a podcast, at least from an outsider's perspective. And to that end, I, I guess I'll start with, you know, a while back, I know that you had a co-host on the Embrace the Void podcast. It was a uh, uh, GW, right? And mm -hmm. I don't recall if we, if I ever heard like a follow-up as to like what happened, but I do recall that like suddenly, I think he like moved to Florida and then like, he kind of fell off the face of the earth and wasn't involved in the podcast anymore. I know how I would feel as a podcaster. How did that impact your ability to, both your technical ability to do the podcast, but also your personal motivation? Did it, did it kill your, your desire to want to do it weekly? It didn't, it didn't kill my desire to want to do it weekly. It did make it substantially harder for a period of time up until it's continued to be frustrating in certain ways. So, you know, what happened was, I, as far as I can tell, GW got a new job in florida he moved down there he got married and i think you know was really busy with real life stuff and i guess didn't feel comfortable just coming to me and telling me that he didn't want to do the show anymore or something or he was mm -hmm. angry with me i don't know because i literally have never heard from him to find oh, out really yeah. um, despite attempts to try to find out what was going on um so I, as far as I know, he's still alive. He occasionally, or his his wife occasionally posts on Facebook, so I know mm. he's alive, um, but hasn't been responsive. Um, it sucked. It it's it, it's it was an unfortunate sort of reminder. And you know, here's here's a bit of information that I will provide for anyone as as advice uh, if you're doing podcasting with another person. Mm -hmm. um, have shared control and information over all the accounts yeah. um, because to be a podcaster is to set up five or six different accounts on different platforms and if you you know somewhere along the chain someone's gonna have to use their email originally and if that happens and you don't have access to that email and you don't have access to the phone number that was used alongside that, yeah. it will make your life much harder if that person suddenly disappears and you have to try to reset a bunch of accounts. Um, so at this point, I've, you know, I, I've regained control over the Squarespace account that we use for hosting and um, you know, I, I've shifted things to my own PayPal and I control the Patreon and all that sort of stuff. The last sort of holdout that I have to figure out at some point. And I just, I haven't done it because it's psychologically demoralizing mm. is trying to regain sufficient control over the iTunes account so that I can actually look at statistics oh. for the account. Yeah. I don't, um, 
you know, I can post to the to the account just fine, but I don't like have a login for analytics on iTunes. Oh, um, interesting. I haven't been able to look at it for, you know, a year now. Um, and like, it's not a huge deal. I, I'm not trying to get um, sponsors, for example, so I right. don't need those analytics at the moment. But it just, I haven't done it because I know it's going to involve calling them and getting pushback and having to explain the situation. And, you know, while I think I will eventually be able to get access to what I need, it's just going to be a a frustrating reminder of uh, the fact that my my friend bailed on me and made my life hard for a year. Yeah, Uh, for sure. And in in like the best year too, right? uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was good. But I will say it didn't it didn't undercut my desire to do the show. Like I still love doing the show, and so that hasn't been an issue. Um, though I do, you know, I I will generally recommend if you're gonna start a podcast, preferably start it with someone else hmm. uh, rather than trying to start one alone. I think would be my recommendation. But you know, you can do it either way. I just think having a partner m- makes the grind a little bit less grindy. It is more work than one thinks it is uh, if one mm-hmm. just listens to podcasts, that's for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, uh, so you said you have a Squarespace site. Do you host the podcast RSS feed on your Squarespace site via a blog? And can you get yeah, analytics exactly. through that? I guess is my question. Yes. I can. I do. I, I have serious doubts about their reliability as analytics. Really? Um, I haven't well, taken well, so a look. Let, let me put it this way. I either have I serious doubts about them or my podcast is doing much better than I think it's actually doing um, would be what I would say is that. Hmm. So, so they they give analytics based on subscribers uh-huh. as, far, as far as I can tell. And they're the number that they provide for the subscriptions for embrace the void seems very high compared to what i understood to be the amount of like unique downloads that Hmm. we were getting per episode when i last had access to anything approaching reasonable analytics so you know like I, i do think the show has grown over the past year so maybe it's possible that we've gotten up to those kinds of numbers but i do think um you know, generally speaking, for folks who are interested in the podcasting world, analytics is a very weird space of, like, lots of unreliable information, mm-hmm. some of which translates into monetizability, but mostly, I think, translates into just people getting a little too fixated on tracking their numbers rather right. than just doing their show. I agree. Yeah, I mean, like, what even... like. One analytics provider might consider a play that someone pressed play on your podcast, regardless of how long they actually listened to it. While another one will say, no, they had to listen to 90% of the time elapsed of the of the possible time elapsed in that episode for that to count as a play, or they have to actually finish the episode uh, for it to count as a play in some cases. Um, I've seen a lot of weird mm-hmm. things. Um, though I will point out yeah, that like, definitely know. your name got pretty well out there. Uh, over the over the time that you lost touch with GW, I mean, I I read your edits to the bio, and I will leave out the thing that happened there uh, that that you edited out of the bio that I prepared. Uh, but suffice uh-huh. to say, yeah, like you you kind of got out there, so I wouldn't be t- super surprised if your podcast grew that big. Well, yeah, I I, I just don't know. So I mean, here's yeah. what I'll say, roughly speaking, I think. Um, 
you know, I, this is part of why I do want to look at the want to get hold of the iTunes analytics eventually, just to compare notes between mm-hmm. the different platforms yeah. analytic models. So I have, you know, I have the Squarespace analytics, and then Philosophers in Space is hosted on a Libsyn um, platform instead of Squarespace, and Libsyn does its own separate analytics models. Um, there, so you know, like. I guess I'll share this. I don't. I don't think it's like trade secrets or anything like that. But like, according to Libsyn, we get somewhere between two and three thousand unique downloads per episode nice. for philosophers in space, which is, as far as I can tell, on the the low end of decent, right? Like what you what what broadly speaking, people will quote you in terms of the benchmark for where you can start getting you know reasonably functional sponsorship like if you want to start like monetizing uh, selling, your pod- yeah you know if you want to start selling casper mattresses right you've got to get to like ten thousand downloads um <sighs> so like we're not near that you know we're not near i would guess anywhere near sort of thomas smith who's my my co-host on philosophers in space his show opening arguments is like a Huge. tier above right right substantially in terms of you know their funding from patrons as well as from uh, funding for um, commercials and stuff like that. Uh, so, so, so I have that number right, and then like over on Squarespace, they tell me that Embrace the Void has something like between eighteen thousand and thirty thousand subscribers <laughs> or something like that. You should just quote right? that to all the advertisers, man. <laughs> right, problem solved. Like, there's, no, <laughs> there's, there's clearly, I, I do not believe that I have that many yeah. people listening to one of my podcasts and not the other podcast. Is what uh, I'm saying. No, yeah, right? especially like, ETB over philosophers and space. Like the the wonky one yeah. is the one that has the eighteen thousand listeners. I mean, no offense, yeah. but like I would definitely qualify. ETV is more wonky than Philosophers in Space. It's- True, though it is it is complicated by the fact that I tend to be on the Embrace the Void Twitter all the time and not Philosophers in Space Twitter. Uh-huh. So I don't know how much that actually translates into, mm. you know, it is a little weird how often people will tell me that they didn't know that I had a second podcast, despite it, it getting strange reference, I think. <laughs> I think you mentioned that, like, every know. episode. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, there, there is, I'm not going to say there's, like, one-to-one crossover, but I would imagine it's, it's sm- the gap is smaller than 18,000 or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So... You know, I think subscribers is a, a a much larger metric than downloads, for example. For sure. So I think, um, you know, I think realistically, I probably we're probably getting two to three thousand. I think that that number is probably more realistic about like how many human beings are listening to these podcasts yep. on a regular basis. Do you have any idea of like what I I always. Well, before I stopped listening to like Sam Harris's podcast, I, I would hear him complain about like how one in like a hundred people or something like that would donate any kind of money to him on Patreon or whatever. Um, I wonder if there is like a weird relationship there with like a smaller kind of niche podcast maybe is getting more money from its patrons uh, like per capita, you know, like per listener uh, than a large mm-hmm. like a Freakonomics podcast that. Uh, maybe f- people feel like it's so well established they don't need to. Yeah, so it's complicated. I think my understanding is, at least, you know, this is probably all out the window after COVID. But mm. the pre-COVID numbers were 
you know, a decently monetized podcast, it was something like 5% of your listeners are patrons Mm. or something like that. Um, I think for my shows, the numbers probably was closer to 10 to 15%. Um, So we're certainly outperforming in terms of that kind of sponsorship i would say yeah um and i think you're i think you're probably right that to some extent there is there's like levels there's like 90 percent of podcasts probably make zero dollars mm-hmm. um and we can certainly talk or about are paying like to have reality. their podcast hosted on the various services right they make negative dollars right, right? because you need to be making a, a minimum amount of dollars just to be breaking even right, right? so the, most podcasts for their short experience lives make let you know negative dollars mm-hmm. and then um you know, then there's this range. I think there's probably a small band of podcasts that are like where we're at, which is like making a little bit of money, but not like anything to live off of or something. No one's like quitting that. a job. Right. 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 Exactly. And then you've got like, I think Thomas with his aggregated various podcasts, including his, you know, opening arguments, which makes a, co- a good bit of money. Mm-hmm. Um, Right, he's able to do that full time. That's you know a percentage of a percentage. Right? We're talking about a tiny, tiny number of podcasters. But there is the weird thing where folks like Chapo, at least you know I don't know where they're at now, but at their peak, you know they were pulling down forty thousand a month or something like that. It's where true. there's like, I get to a weird place of not understanding who goes to. The Patreon for Chapo says these folks are pulling down 39k. Mm-hmm. I need to throw another five bucks at these people. I right. don't. I can't understand the rationality of that individual. To me, the people that I want to put money towards are the ones who are making, you know, approximately about as much as I'm making on podcasts right. and are making really good content and are making, you know just just enough off of it to sort of be incentivizing them to expand their work in that way. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, that was a little rabbit hole down into uh, podcast analytics there, but um, definitely right up my alley in the podcast alley. So I appreciate it. I think you briefly mentioned that maybe after GW left you, was there a time when you had to edit your podcast yourself? Was that a big technical challenge for you to pick up or... Thankfully, no, I didn't because then I w- it just wouldn't have happened because <laughs> I don't have those skills. And even if I did, I can't stand to listen to myself talk in audio form, Mm -hmm. I would, I would just quit because it's horrible. It's just pure torture. Um, so what happened was, um, after, after GW quit, uh, Brian, who edits our philosophers and who was editing our philosophers in space podcasts at the time, Mm -hmm. um, picked up editing, embrace the void as well. Um, and he did that for a little while. And then because of COVID stuff, he had to focus on real life things um, and ended up handing off bo- editing both of those podcasts to my wonderful wife, Lou, who has developed uh, the skills of pod, you know, of editing um, when originally doing video stuff, but hmm. also doing audio. And so now she edits both of our shows. Um, and, and I was lucky enough that... Um, both shows were established enough at that point that um, I had enough to be able to pay her, you know, a functional amount to do that. Yeah. Um, and that that I think is one of the hardest hurdles for podcasters who aren't who don't have who don't have the skill set of editing themselves. The cost of editing is pretty prohibitive. Mm. Um, 
you know, of the things that are like mostly generally speaking, podcasting is a lower cost to entry medium, you know, compared to how much you can reach people uh, overall. But I do think the barriers are things like primarily things like getting a, initial equipment set up and uh, editing costs. Sure. Yeah, I mean, a lot of podcasters are former musicians or current musicians, and so they just have the equipment, which is mm-hmm. kind of the boat that I found myself in. So that that wasn't such a big deal. I agree. There are some pretty cool solutions out there, like Descript is an online tool that you can like load video or audio into. It automatically transcribes it into text, and then when you edit mm. the text that it has transcribed, it changes the audio and like edits out the audio or if you've trained it to learn your voice for 10 minutes, it can generate a new word as long as it's not like a whole like sentence or whatever. It's just like a little short phrase. Yeah. Lou, Lou looked at that and I think she ultimately found, just felt that it wasn't, it wasn't quite there yet mm. in terms of. When did she look at it? Cause I just used it last week to edit the interview I did with George Robb and I used and it, was it. pretty good. It was, I mean, man, it was a literal find and replace on all the uhs and ums. And it was seamless. Yeah, she tried it. Um, <laughs> she tried it a a few months ago, I want to huh. say, and I think ultimately didn't find it to be the most functional. And we've we've fiddled around with different things. You're always like fiddling. Even even Tom- Thomas is the funniest to me huh. because Thomas's audio is like perfect. He's dumped millions of dollars right like hundreds of millions of dollars i imagine into his audio equipment at this point but like every time he signs on he's redone his system in some way and yeah. has to make sure that like everything is backwards that he's constantly fiddling uh, but i've you know like for example my setup was originally we would use google hangouts and we would record i was recording on reaper i still record on reaper which is what gw set me up with i'm I am very illiterate when it comes to audio stuff. Okay. I do theatrical lighting. So I, you know, if I had to take apart a light, I'd be in good shape, huh. but I don't know anything about any of this stuff. So I had to learn from him and then figure stuff out when he disappeared. Um, and, and like I was able to work stuff out enough that I could continue to record my audio and my guest's audio, which is the first sort of the main technical technical hurdle as a podcaster that you have to figure out is yep. figuring out how to have a system that'll record theirs and yours. Now, the most functional way to do that at this point is stuff like Zencaster. Um, when I was starting out, Zencaster was still pretty glitchy yep. and generally like crashy. So I was using Google Hangouts for a long time and recording on Reaper. Google Hangouts recently discontinued, though, so we're not using that anymore. Right. Um, so I've pro- I, I, at this point, I'm I'm switching to ZenCaster with Reaper as a backup mm-hmm. in case ZenCaster crashes. Because the advantage of ZenCaster is that it processes the audio well. It does a decent job in doing things like audio balancing basic mm-hmm. stuff like that that otherwise you have to either run it through a program like audacity or do it uh, by hand in whatever editing program you're yeah. doing so i think zencaster especially after my little experience today with restream studio is going to be my next thing that i try uh there's mm-hmm. also something called like a session wire or live se- something like that it lets you do apparently it was made for musicians to l- literally collaborate mm-hmm. on music from across the country in real time 
uh, which I'm interested uh, in trying as well. But so Zencaster is, is your current preference. Cool. And you said Reaper was your DAW. Uh, let me, sorry, I'm marking up checks here. I have my own lightning round, by the way, that I will be subjecting you to, my friend. Oh, good. I blatantly stole. <laughs> you know, theft is the sincerest form of flattery and all that. <laughs> well, and that's how I meant it. I'm glad you took it that way. Did you uh, did you briefly mention that you were maybe part of an AV club or like a theater club in high school or something like that? Oh, sure. Yeah, I've been in all sorts of nerdy clubs. Uh, I did LARPing in high school. Oh, man. Um, yeah, no, I can go real nerdy if you want. Yeah, no, I was in the theater club. I directed the senior play like when i when i was in school what was, was the play the theater the theater club was pretty much my group of friends was, was <laughs> uh, that was um a much ado about nothing that oh. was you know fairly unoriginally ripped off of the kenneth Branagh version for the most part i'll be honest but mm-hmm. like was fairly well staged for a high school version and i think we did a pretty good job with it all things considered it was, certainly wasn't breaking new ground or anything but it was entertaining it was fun to watch great yeah uh were you yeah. in in the av club or uh do you consider i know you said you weren't an audio nerd are you a computer nerd at all not really no? um okay. no i mean i'm i'm more point and clicky when it comes to a lot of this stuff like i i have have to force myself to learn enough of it to be able to play video games and things like that but like i'm mostly just there to play the video games i'm not really interested in building the computer or or understanding it's functioning any more than to ask questions about whether or not it's conscious (laughs) okay no i i I hear that Uh, what mic are you currently using oh god (laughs) it should just be written right on there man you should warn me it's a Boss, no wait. Uh, Bose, okay. maybe Bose. Bose, I think. Yeah. Or no, Road. Uh, uh, no, is that right? Oh God! <laughs> You've shown my weakness. Uh, the AT twenty twenty. AT twenty twenty. Uh, I think it's my boss. It doesn't have a name on it. I swear. I'm not crazy. That's cool. Uh, I'll Google Boss or Road AT twenty twenty. I'm sure I'll find something. <laughs> Audio Technica. Audio Technica. There you go. Sorry, this this really reveals my level of incompetence. Uh, I I bought the mic that I was told to buy, and that's what happened. Uh, with mics, don't feel bad about it, man. The mic I'm talking to you on, which is hidden in the shadow right now, so you can't really see it, but it mm-hmm. is it is literally. I think I paid sixty bucks for it from MXR. It's like the cheapest condenser mic you could buy ten years ago. And honestly, as long as you know how to set up some settings, like you can get by with it. As long as it's not a dynamic mic and, and you're not, you know, pointing it in the wrong direction or something like that, you should be fine. So don't beat yourself up about not knowing your mic. Yes, well. generally speaking. Uh, yeah, Audio Technica AT2020 is the name of this mic. Cool. Uh, and it's run through a focus right. Um, little red boxy, uh, what they Scarlet. Um, yeah, Scarlet S Solo S USB setup. Um, you got a model number on the front or back? No USB. Uh, Sorry, Focusrite Scarlet would return literally a hundred and fifty products of theirs or, or something like that. So they call Hewlett all their Solo Focusrite. That's all I'm seeing. Solo Focusrite. Cool. Thank you. Is that, is that, is that right? Hewlett? Uh, oh no! Sorry, just Scarlet Solo Focus, right? Yeah. 
Okay, it's got uh, two uh, inputs on the front. Is that right? Two mic inputs. Yeah, on the front? exactly. Yeah. Two inputs. Cool. Awesome. Did you feel like? So I, I think that as a college lecturer, I imagine that you probably had to shift a little bit towards teaching remotely this year. Sure. Did you feel like yeah. having live stream podcasting experience helped you make that transition? Or for sure. So I mean, I think. I was lucky in both cases to have all the theater experience that I had mm. that, you know, this translated pretty effectively from those things. So when I went into podcasting, um, I felt pretty comfortable doing it because I had a fair bit of vocal practice and training and things like that from those experiences. And then, yeah, then when, when I was, so I was also doing, online courses for winter and summer courses mm -hmm. prior to uh, the collapse of civilization. <laughs> so it wasn't as bad a transition for me as it was, I think, for a lot of professors who'd never taught online. And I actually spent, uh, you know, <laughs> this the semester that we went online, so the one, I guess it would have been the, um, the spring semester of last year, I was TAing for a professor who had taught for, you know, his entire life. It was like literally his second to last semester before oh, wow. he retired and he had never taught an online course. And so it was my job to like fully set up an online course that he could access and the students could access and it would be functional and also having my own courses on top of that. So I wanted to ask like, uh, how, how much do you plan out the format of the show? Like, did you always know that Embrace the Void was going to open with some little short blurb that ended with the phrase Embrace the Void? Did you always have the lightning round or better know a philosopher as like ideas for segments before you started? Or did those evolve naturally? They all evolved. <laughs> all evolved? Okay. Yeah, I wish I could I wish I could say there was a master plan to any of it. I would say we had fairly little idea about what exactly we were doing going in. Now, the you know, what originally I called invocations, though I think I, they're more correctly called convocations, the the opening quotes did start from the very beginning. I used the first one as a kind of explanation for what the show was nominally about in terms of embracing the void. Um, and then from there, it just sort of became a improv exercise for me, I guess, in terms of finding a quote each week. Uh, it's it's weird. I know that it, it, some people find it off-putting. Other folks, I think, really enjoy it. And I'm clearly way too far into the shtick to, to drop it now. Um, <laughs> so... You know, there's a, there's a whole conversation about philosophy of shticks to be had about like the correct balance of maintaining a shtick versus dropping a shtick when it gets stale, uh, because almost all shticks will get stale, and how you how you deal with that is very challenging. So the enlightening round, for example, is new. Relatively speaking, it, it came about after about a hundred episodes into embrace the void around the time you know like shortly after gw left when i revamped the show as primarily interviewing other people rather mm -hmm. than occasionally interviewing other people alongside doing our solo in you know two-person shows at that point um i also you know was fiddling with stuff and i think originally what happened was i wanted to particularly screw with one particular guest uh stingray and <laughs> so i you know came up with a list of things that were like real or not real and people thought that was hilarious and so it sort of 
spiraled from there. Um, I'm now at the point where I, if I'm starting to look at people who I might be having back on for a second time and what I might do in place of the lightning, the, the next level of the enlightening round, essentially, you know, what comes next after mm-hmm. real or not real. I have some fun things sort of in store on that front. We'll see how that works out. Um, but I do think it is very much an organic process. What I would say is you want to try to come up with a couple of tent post things that stay the same forever, mm-hmm. you know, have a, a, a couple of segments that you consistently go through. Mm-hmm. So I've always got, you know, a little intro and embrace the void at this point, And then the main interview segment and then the enlightening round at the end. And if you can't, you know, ideally you want to put some audio clips in between those bumper, sort of as they call them. bumper. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think that stuff does, you know, in terms of like bang for your buck, like energy for act, you know, payoff. I think that stuff is particularly valuable. Did you feel like you did more planning before starting Philosophers in Space, which to me from like the first episode felt like it had a little bit more of a format, you know, like there was the opening, then the exposition zone, like you even for a while Mm -hmm. were like literally acting like you were floating in space and periodically you you occasionally do that to this day. But like um, Uh it it felt to me as a listener like that was a little bit more thought out and maybe that was a result of you and Thomas just being more mature as podcasters at that point. And having less it time. Was, I think it was that plus it, it was just a really easy concept. It's, it's sort of like okay. I've gotten very lucky in terms of like for me, Embrace the Void is a space that is nominally tied around a theme that people find interesting around the void, but I don't feel pressured to like make every moment of it about the void. It can just be a kind of wide ranging interview show that f- does frequently tie back to the fact that we are in this horrible timeline, but doesn't doesn't feel forced about that. And then I'm also lucky, I feel like on the Philosophers in Space side, when we hit upon the idea of doing that concept, like the format sort of came together just very naturally. And so it wasn't, it it certainly felt very formed from the beginning, but we didn't do a ton of prep in terms of like workshopping stuff um, so much as just like, it it just like was a very naturally feeling idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did a couple episodes before we released it just to get ahead. Right. But I think it was, it was pretty much there from the beginning um, and has mostly stayed the same. We, we fiddled a little bit with like having a, a special a sound effect for when we talk about a, a thought experiment, but mm-hmm. it was a little too unwieldy to try to drop it in partly because, you know, you come up with thought experiments on the fly. A lot right. Half the time you're stuff. like in the weeds of an argument and you're like, okay, hang on. We need a little, a little thought experiment here to satisfy the needs of this tiny argument so that we can move on to the larger one and finish that point. And like to drop right. that so, sound effect in 12 times in an episode just starts to get, get kind of crazy. Is that what you're talking right, about? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. We didn't want to didn't want to feel constrained by having to, to deal with that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I really I, I like it. It's challenging. And it's funny. I, I have anxiety about both shows in different ways at different times in terms <laughs> of like, I you know, I always am wondering when are they going to stop working? Because like every piece of art like it's so it's such a weird format 
television shows go for you know unless they're the simpsons they go for a reasonable amount of seasons uh, yeah. and they stop, right <laughs> yeah. even even like movies that have sequels right eventually it stops mm-hmm. right to some extent podcasting has a kind of open-endedness to it that is nice but also terrifying like you know you you're always like you're just going to keep doing this until i guess you burn out or people stop listening or something um and so there's a lot of am i burning out how do i cope with burning out um you know in the case of embrace the void the, the one of the biggest stressors is do i have an interviewee you know every week how do i get a person every week i hear you um, man. It, i hear that's, you that's very challenging <laughs> yeah um and for me a lot of that has involved just sort of combing twitter and philosophy twitter for for guests um and pulling in people from skeptics and stuff but it's always you're like always hustling in that kind of way um and that can be a bit tiring um this so for example you know this coming week for the longest time, I, I couldn't get a guest. Like mm. everybody's available in two weeks. Everybody's available at the beginning of Feb, you know, beginning of February. But like nobody was cool for next week. And then all of a sudden, like I have two guests that you know. So I'll I'll mm. record with two people next week, and then I'll be ahead a week, and that'll be good. But like that that being ahead can disappear at any moment. Yeah, I've been facing the but same like, thing, for sure. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, what were you about to say? I didn't mean to cut you off. Like, Oh, no, I just wanted to add, um, you know, on the flip side, doing Philosophers in Space, I I don't worry about getting a guest every week. I worry about what's the new piece of content? How Do I have enough philosophy to fill the time? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we're doing a book, are we? how many episodes are we stretching it across? Those sorts of things. And I'm always like... I'm always, like, wondering what's going to run out first, the philosophical topics or the sci-fi content. Mm. And it's it's 90% of the time it's the philosophy. It's, um, there's no end of sci-fi, but the difficulty is 90% of that science fiction covers the same five philosophical topics. And right? at the most basic scratching the surface level every time. Right, right. Right, exactly. So, like, you know, you can knock out ninety-five percent of sci-fi using teleporter or transporter problems. Right, right. Like <laughs> ship of Theseus problems covers, right. you know, that ha- like most of it, and then like the other stuff, you get a couple of you know problems around AI, problems Time around paradoxes. Yeah, right. Um, so it's tricky to grab you know content that i want to do that is good content and be like well what's the novel bit of philosophy that we can do that isn't rehashing an old episode Mm -hmm. is the stuff that makes me now we've done enough episodes that i'm told it's okay if i start going back and recovering some content a little bit people will have forgotten enough of it that uh it's okay for me to recover some topics but there's also ones where it's just like you know, my favorite science fiction horror of all time, I think the best all time ever, you know, greatest goat is this is the thing. Uh, John Carpenter's the really? thing. Okay. Um, which I could talk about forever. There's not a ton of philosophy in it, mm. right? You can talk about fear of the other. You can talk about, you know, communism. You can talk about sort of connecting dots a little bit kind of stuff. But mostly it's just a really brilliant movie where I want to talk about, you know, the special effects and how um, uh, Wilfred Brimley is the most hilarious thing in the universe. (laughs) Uh, But, like, 
that's that's the tricky part is how do you make it you know we don't want we don't we, we were very clear on the front end we didn't want the show to just be us sort of fan fanboying about our favorite sci-fi we wanted it to have meaty philosophical content now we have talked about like well what if we do an episode and we just you know connections be damned we're going to talk about this bit of sci-fi that we really like and then we're going to talk about philosophy and the connections can be very tenuous Mm -hmm. so that's an option but i haven't i haven't fallen back on it yet and i've Mm -hmm. tried to avoid it out of principle so far that may be silly but that's sort of might been my mindset on it no i I could see i could see how that would be a a different stressor in, in a way but like yeah trying to find a new whether or not it's a new bit of content to, you know, prime the intuitions or whatever it's called, um, uh, to even mm-hmm. find like a, a topic that is touched on in sufficient detail that, that you can really get into the meat of the interesting philosophy and not just be talking about, but is red really the same color to us all sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, right. <laughs> I've done a lot of recording of class work you know, of class class lectures. Mm-hmm. And it's been cool because those class lecture recordings have, I've then sort of been handing them out as bonus content on Patreon for my podcasts. Yeah. So like people who for bizarre reasons need even more of my content than they're already getting per week, they can, um, you know, go and listen to lectures on AI ethics and stuff like that. So, so this is another interesting like issue for for listeners who are curious about podcasting. So, uh, what about Patreon tiers? How much planning like was After Dark always going to be a Patreon bonus and a way to m- help monetize the Philosophers in Space podcast? And was that a conscious decision? Yeah, so that was planned from the beginning. I think that was Thomas's idea, and it was sort of. Um, having having a little bit of bonus time on each episode mm-hmm. turned into you know having a little bit of bonus time where because I wanted the the main show to be something that teachers could in theory assign in their classes right uh, you know along you know here's some extra material if you in, you know were interested in this topic kind of thing um, and so we, we wanted to keep that clean so it sort of paired well together to to make the bonus content also the unclean content mm-hmm. um, and so then then we got after dark and yeah so so pe- the tears you definitely want to think about it a good bit initially. I've, I've recently gone through a revamp, um, which was the first major sort of overhaul that I did since starting mm-hmm. either podcast. Um, and that involved kind of streamlining my tiers a little bit, getting rid of like levels that nobody was using a little bit. Um, and it's really, you just got to be thoughtful. How, how, you know, how are you going to give a good reason in terms of, so there are different there are different philosophies about this, which is why I keep you know like I keep wanting to back up more and back up more into the <laughs> meta philosophies of Patreon tiers. Um, but like some people will say, you know, Patreon is all bonus for people who voluntarily choose to support the show, and that you shouldn't see it as as like you're ever gonna get anything out of it, and anything you get out of it is great and bonus. Mm-hmm. Whereas others will see it as like giving access to specific additional pieces of you know concrete content um and i think the re- you know the reality is more the latter right I, we can idealize towards the former but like more often than not we are sort of saying 
if you provide reliable support that allows the show to keep going will give you some access to something extra. And I have very mixed feelings about that as an educator. I want all my stuff to be free mm. and available to everybody. That's a good point. Like I don't I don't want to put anything behind a paywall if I could avoid it. But I also want to be able to eat and and pay my you know wife to edit so that she can selfish. eat selfish like that. Right, it is selfish. <laughs> um, you know, Thomas is a little more like capitalist about it like and i i respect that i have no i'm not judging him and saying that but like um so but there are other podcasts conversely that do the opposite right they're like just give us a buck Mm -hmm. if you're willing to give us a buck an episode that that makes it worth it to us um yeah now let me say this i would say don't do that um (laughs) and here's here's why there's good there's as far as I can tell decent evidence that suggests that the buck an episode or, or like the, the the one dollar donation tier is not good. It doesn't really benefit the 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 present producer of content and it isn't really particularly a satisfying level of contribution for people who are doing supporting. That's true. So like you know, my philosophy has been I have a level of support now that is you know, four four-ish dollars, I think, four to five dollars for the episode for mm-hmm. for a month, right? So that's not per episode. So so there's also a whole debate about like getting per, per episode, episode or per, per month. month. Yeah. Here's what I'll say. You know, if you had been starting out during five years ago, right, or four years ago, and we're getting on the front end, and you did per episode rather than per month, you made more money probably. Because yeah. I think psychologically people look at the per episode number as being smaller and they don't think about it as much. That being said, um, I lean towards, I prefer the per month because I want people to know here's how much I'm putting towards it so that they don't get sticker shock in two months and quit. Right. Like it's plus there's like the ability for patrons to like limit the monthly contribution, right? So like you could do a dollar an episode, but limit your monthly contribution to a dollar. And in mm. theory, be a patron at that level and get four episodes, unless someone's really checking. Yeah, so there are different ways that you can game Patreon. It's not actually not that hard to game Patreon. Of course you can, not. Yeah. You know, generally speaking, I think once you've become a patron, you get access to the patron RSS feed. Mm-hmm. And, like, when you get canceled from patron, Patreon, I think you still have access to the RSS oh, feed. Really? So, like, if you've copied it into your pod app, you know, you've already gotten access to most of bonus content for most hmm. shows. Um, so, you know, sorry if I cheated anybody on that one, but like my view is I want a bunch of patrons who are paying $5 a month at mm-hmm. most. Uh, I don't, you know, I ha- we have some patrons who are paying a lot more than that and I, I love them and appreciate them, but I can't understand how people have more than $5 a month to be contributing to a single podcast, right? Like if $10 a month gets you HBO Max or something like that, right? Like Mm -hmm. content-wise, I'm not providing what HBO Max is providing in terms of range of content. So to be realistic, right? Like I want people to feel like they are getting enough of a valuable experience that they want to pay what what essentially is a dollar per episode, right? $5 a month or something like that. And that gets them you know, extended episodes for Philosophers in Space. That gets them, once I've got it up and running again, the bonus book club content for Embrace the Void. And it gets them early access to both uh, shows Mm -hmm. uh, to varying degrees. So, like, I do, you know, we have a level where you get 
what I would say is like 80% of the bonus material, essentially, like the bonus goodies. And then like if you go above that level, then you get access to um, uh, things like my... Um, things like my lecture series and stuff like mm -hmm. that uh you get access to so for a while we had it over on philosophers in space where like ten dollar patrons got access to our nasa making fun of movies content or show you know making not a satire Aaron. but yeah. We, we yeah right we, eventually we took that down to five dollars which i think was the right thing to do to make that accessible to mm -hmm. you know what was the largest bulk of our patrons by far um, but then you just want to be thinking about like how are you thanking your top tier patrons and for that it's things like thanking them you know every show by name um, mm -hmm. so that you get them also that can be fun because then they can change their names and you can have a little bit of banter with them through that so ways, ways yeah. to engage like that can be valuable like we really love over on Philosophers in Space, doing the listener Q and A's where we go through everybody's names. I like that too. I like it when you have to right. read the names. It's fun, right? And I'm terrible at reading names. And we get to find out, you know, who's changed their names of the lower tier individuals. Yeah. Because otherwise, there's no incentive for those lower tier individuals to, you know, put funny names in in the right. thing. Because then, like, funny names isn't is a, like a weekly read off, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Funny names to me is like ninety percent of the benefits of Patreon. So. Uh. Yeah, I'm. I don't know. Ever since uh, COVID started, like getting people in housing problems and stuff like that, uh, I I'm the lame guy who's just give to modestneeds.org, give to modestneeds.org, um, because uh -huh. my I am a high enough patron on several podcasts that it gets read off once a week, and hopefully mm -hmm. that's driving a few people out there in the world to give some more money to that awesome charity. Uh, so I take the yeah. bite in the butt and don't tell jokes that you know. Uh, it's just one more thing I have to think of a week anyway. So, fair enough, and I think that's great to be supporting groups like that. I don't, you know, like it's not moral obligation to entertain me with your patron names every time. Um, so I'm I'm fully sympathetic to that. Oh, it's and super occupatory to uh to entertain you with yeah. uh, patron names. That's good. That's, that's good. right. Good. Um, <laughs> I also, you know, you bring up the 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 circuit situation, and it's something that I deal with a lot, where I feel. Like, whatever anxiety I already felt about charging anyone for any of my content, I feel much worse in a, in a world where, you know, I'm surviving, I'm doing fine right. as well. And, like, this income allows me to spend time on doing this rather than other jobs. Mm -hmm. um, but I still feel anxious taking money from anybody right now because I feel like, you know, everybody needs to be taking care of themselves in a lot of ways. So, you know. That's just my yeah. own, my own guilt. Uh, we are at the end of our time, and the lightning round is completely technical. And it took you, I think, five minutes to find the name of your microphone. So we're going to skip oh, over the lightning round. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that I ruined your <laughs> man. I was just kidding, just kidding, um, just giving you a hard time. Um, oh, but that would have been so funny. <laughs> do you have a Do you have an extra few minutes for me to talk about AI ethics? Like I know I'm, I'm pushing the time, so if you got to go, you got to go. And I understand. Oh no, that. I got a little bit of extra time. Go for it. Okay, so. Hard cut, hard left turn here. Not talking about audio whatsoever. I am a computer developer. I write automation software. I automate processes for a major company that I work for. Um, and <laughs> that's how you can afford to be a patron on so many uh, podcasts. Yes, more or less. Yeah, uh, and and a musician and buy all that music equipment and stuff, which ain't cheap either. Um, no. 
but uh yeah so like i i went down you know there was the recent deplatforming of all those extremist groups which then pushed them to signal and telegram which has been kind of coming up in the news because like sure the wap host has like a an, uh, reporter or two that has access to those channels but the post frequency is getting so high that they cannot keep up with it they, and um that instantly kind of triggered in my brain. Well, I know how I would solve that as a developer. I'd write an AI algorithm that just sat there looking at the channel uh, talk using natural language processing. Do you know what natural language processing is? Uh, as oh, AI, yeah, I sure. bet you do. And then sentiment yeah. analysis. And then if you mm -hmm. added on top of that, a dictionary that said cheese pizza means raping kids, then you could basically train an algorithm to be like, okay, you should have a human take a look at these 50 posts or whatever. Um, sure. But yeah, I also know those for, services are used. Search for Chrome. Right? But those same services are used for like people that are battered spouses. And I, I want them to have a safe way to do it. And like, God forbid, someone in the wrong position who was a batterer of a spouse got their hands on my algorithm or, or whatever. Like, ah, um, feels like a real ethical dilemma to me. But at the same time, I feel kind of more pressed to action because of the potential for like buildings to start blowing up in the future. So ethical philosopher, Aaron, <laughs> on AI ethics, what are your thoughts? Sucks. It's, it's, it's rough. There's no easy answer on this one. Well, um, it's an ethical question. There is no easy answer. Right. An There's question. rarely an easy answer. And, you know, I immediately will fall back on, well, boy, I don't know. Uh, crime boy, I don't know. Uh, no, I mean, here's what I'll say. You know, these are these are, these have always been problems in terms of like security and safety versus freedom and lack of a police state and, and epistemology. I would put in there too, right? Like it's literally sure. written about in federal federal oh, federalist number one. You know, he's mm -hmm. complaining about how the press instantly published these pamphlets, newsletters, uh, excoriating the constitution that had just been passed by the constitutional Congress. Right. I mean, when you look at the printing press, right. right think about, think about what the first thing is that's written, that, that's produced on the printing press is a giant book of misinformation, mm -hmm. right? A bunch of things that are not true and that lead to a bunch of harms in a variety of ways, right. at least from my atheistic perspective. Um, so like, I don't know if it's literally the first thing, but I think of, you know, the, the, the Bible as being sort of right. the <laughs> thing that, that like expands exponentially spreads through the world as a result of, the rise of the printing press so technology is an accelerant for ethical crises right you you if you have an ethical crisis and then you you add um stuff like the internet to it it, it is definitely fuel to the fire now I'm. I tend to still be in favor of the internet. I know this. This is a controversial position. I don't. I don't uh, think so. Like the history of mankind is like the good guys just outproduce and produce better content than the bad guys, and we just beat them overall. Sure. Except yeah, for very recently. <laughs> well, I mean, that's how it works with like the Federalist Papers. That's how it worked with like um, with a, a lot of technology. Uh, the the first inventions of uh, of websites, GeoCities websites, right? Got you know, uh, librarians said, don't trust those. You can't use those as sources. And then people moved to Wikipedia and, and then we went down the trail that we're on now. But um, 
yeah, I, don't, I think I don't, we are in a pretty unique epistemic crisis at the moment, I will say. I think that a confluence of political and technological forces and changing demographics and a variety mm-hmm. of other things has made it the case that we are in a situation where people are living in radically different epistemic worlds that are not reconcilable and that there is a lot of animosity as a result of that like social level cognitive dissonance that we Mm -hmm. are experiencing. And I don't think that's getting better anytime soon. And I think, you know, I do think I generally tend to be in favor of regulation for folks who read my monster Island article. You'll know that like, I think that an unregulated internet is a nightmare. Um, but you proved it's also the, the case. unregulated internet is a nightmare. I'll just, yeah, I absolutely you. proved it. Right. Yeah. I proved, <laughs> it, proved it objectively. Well, I mean, sure. Not yeah, like no, scientifically, sure. uh, from a, from a, you know, kind of, uh, outsider's mm-hmm. perspective. It seems like you got some pretty strong evidence on your side, man. Yeah, no, I think it's pretty good in the sense that you're going to need moderators. And then the question is, who's going to be the moderator and like how much power are they going to have invested in them? And I think what I'm concerned about is there was resistance to that idea for so long by groups like Facebook and Twitter that like the fire is way out of control now. Mm -hmm. Like if they had gotten a handle on QAnon at the beginning, we'd be in a very different world. But now we're in this place where millions and millions of people are caught up in like a wildfire of cult conspiracy theory, believing like, like narrative formation. And, and we're not going to put that genie back in the bottle just by kicking a bunch of people off of Twitter. Right. Like we will slow it down some, but like, as you say, it's going to shift to other platforms now. And I think in the absence of central control is going to split off into a million different groups with varying levels of severity. Many of them will be casual, you know, low key flat earther level conspiracy theory stuff, but a decent fraction of them will be really scary, dangerous, anti-government you know, sovereign citizen militia level yeah. worrisome. And I think, you know, you're right to be worried about buildings blowing up. I'm very worried about, um, you know, FEMA vaccine distribution sites blowing up in oh particular. Yeah. Um, because, you know, Alex Jones is still out there right now talking about how the vaccines are a devil worshiping conspiracy to control people. And like, I just, I would be, I would be shocked if there was not some sort of further, violence it would be very weird to me if the capital riot was the last like overt violence we see as a result of these conspiracy theories um so like what is the ai ethics responsibility in all of that well i think i think it's our job to be moderating conspiracy theorists and if that means that like they get pushed to parlor and then parlor gets shut down and then they get pushed to gab or whatever so be it i think that actually is better than nothing and even if that means it's harder to watch them i still think it's better than you know like alex jones not being on twitter is a, is an absolute good donald trump not being on twitter is an absolute good like well, i it's, mean it's, let yeah. me throw out there aaron i'm not sure like i've made the full extent of the potential problem here clear like if I'm a bad actor, right, and I'm in one of these sure. signal channels and I want to make it harder to monitor that signal channel, I write the simplest script in the whole freaking world to just constantly post out there. And then I tell privately in individual chats that are encrypted separately to people I trust, here's how you filter out the garbage. And like you could, 
And then it's just going to be this arms race, right? And sure. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to to do it, and I don't know that there's another option besides going down the road. But I also get really squirmy inside when I think about like what the possible ends of that road are. But I don't know that we have a choice. No, I think you just always are going to be going down that arms race. Like I think it's always like because you you know you build an algorithm that decodes the thing and they build an algorithm that recodes it. It's the Enigma box over and over again forever. Mm -hmm. So like, and and like, it's going to get worse because of the natural language stuff, right? Like uh, we did an episode on GPT three and like, you can just imagine how the introduction of that kind of stuff could create so much confusion in these spaces as well. So like, so, so that's my, my, my sense of it. What I think we, we don't know the answer to is what comes next as these spaces, as we see the shift from Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as 70,000 people get kicked off of Twitter, what is that going to mean in terms of the intensity of QAnon five months from now? Because it could be the case that, like, these groups functioned best when there was a very low barrier to entry. But if you at least make it hard enough that you have to go onto one of these weird sites that isn't Facebook, you lose a lot of weekend warriors, right? And so it is possible that you do see a substantial downtick and a petering off of some of this stuff. I do think you'll still have a hardened chunk of people who are already on those sites, right? Mm -hmm. Who are ready for the apocalypse and are now confirmed in their beliefs and who will then be motivated to act based on their beliefs even more. So here's what I'll say is right. Every attempt, every attempt to address one faction, one part of the epistemic crisis that we are in exacerbates other parts of it. Mm-hmm. So it is the right thing to do to, to lock down on conspiracy theorizing on Twitter and Facebook. Doing so will absolutely exacerbate the paranoid conspiracy theory communities because yeah. you are doing what they think you are going to do, which is locking them down. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's no way to, to do that without the, the, the cost, I think. Yeah. I think it's just that's a cost we have to eat at this point. I kind of really wish that Facebook uh, would just not let you post links in your, in your news feed for like six months that I think would hmm. help fake news so much. Like if you wanted to state an opinion, fine, type your opinion in your own words, go for it. But like, don't paste a link to an article or like share a headline that you didn't read the article for uh, to your, to your news feed. I think that would help, but not that anyone's listening. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't know of any. I don't know if you've seen specific evidence that sort of suggests that that that's a key linchpin for the dissemination of in folks. I mean, I, like a lot of these folks, I think will post stuff without links. But I do agree that you do see with folks like QAnon the constant linking of mm-hmm. groups you know, through that sort of stuff. So you're probably right that there is some substantial impact there. And I'm, I'm curious to see more. There's been some reporting that there was a substantial downtick in misinformation when Trump was banned from all I heard about websites. that too. You know, I want to see further follow-up because it was like, the original numbers were like 70% or something. And I it looked like, fishy be, to the point of your, of your listeners' statistics, right? It's like, okay, right, Squarespace right. just yeah. doesn't know how to count. That's fine. I mean, they built a good website, but they don't know how to count. <laughs> Right, exactly. But I wouldn't be surprised if, like, it did have a substantial impact. Um, And I'm curious to see, you know, overall how much the shutting down of 
QAnon on those main sites has an impact over the next couple of months. Um, that'll be that'll be curious to watch. Excellent. Well, uh, I want to give you a chance to plug any social media. I'll have links, of course, on the so- show notes and all that. But yeah, um, yeah. Where can we mm-hmm. where can we find more about you, Aaron? Yeah. So, I, like I said, I do the majority of my uh, online activities either on Twitter at ETV Pod. Um, you can also follow Zero G Philosophy, where I will occasionally post things. But I, it's very difficult to carry two Twitter accounts. I'll be honest with you. It's like it's hard to summon the energy to like here's the new episode that's out this week twice you know a week um Mm -hmm. on on two accounts and such it's a lot of make work kind of stuff uh and then uh come to our facebook group which is called the philosophers in space it's philosophers in space is the name of the facebook group Mm -hmm. um that's a really really great it's the opposite of monster island it is a utopian community in which i have had to do very little uh, controlling because everyone in there is a perfect angel. Uh, and yeah. And then check out Paradise. the podcast. Sounds, like, sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Aaron. I, I really appreciate the time and uh, you were very generous with your time. So thank you. My pleasure. Good luck with the show. Thank you.